0: We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of his glory to you. Good morning. My name is Vince. I am uh, one of the elders here. I am the teaching pastor. If we have not met, I would love to meet you at some point. I see some new faces, so I'd I'd love to uh, meet you later this this morning. I'll be up here. Um, As you noticed, right when Jeff was making the announcement for our need for AV help, he wasn't actually talking about that bulb that went out but we have a bulb that's out. So that's why that screen, if you're, where are you? Over here, probably, or no, over here, you can't see. Anyway, there's some dead spots where you can't see stuff. So um, if you're looking for this screen to come on, it will not. All right, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 20. If you have a Bible there near you, Exodus is what we are looking at as a church. If you don't know where the book of Exodus is in the Bible, that is fine. Um, it's uh, the second book of the Bible. So turn right to the beginning and flip some pages back and you'll find the book of Exodus. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. So there's one there near you in the pew. You can take that home. Um, And and as we say, you can take it home on one condition that you read it. All right. So we'd love to give that to you. All right. So uh, Exodus 20 is what we're looking at. Um, If you're not familiar with the Bible, again, like I said, that's fine. There's a, a lot of things in the Bible that are actually really familiar. Um, probably you've even heard uh, of some of the things that are there. You've probably heard the very well-known story of Noah's Ark and the flood and how all the animals two by two had to come on. And you've probably heard the Christmas story where um, Mary and Joseph traveled a long way and they had a baby Jesus and there's wise men and shepherds and and angels and and that whole thing. You've probably heard, if you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard the, the great love chapter of 1 corinthians 13 love is patient love is kind those things if you've been maybe to a funeral you've probably heard things like psalm 23 the lord is my shepherd or even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil there are a lot of places in scripture that are really familiar for us um and we hear them all the time maybe you've at least seen the reference to john three sixteen: that's in the bible for god so loved the world that he Gave his only son. The Bible has lots of of really well-known sections. And today, in our study through the book of Exodus, we get to one of those sections that's really familiar. A really well-known passage. If you haven't read it, you, you have probably at least heard about what it's often called, the Ten Commandments. right? So we, we've heard of that, we've, we've heard those. The Ten Commandments are very well-known, and they're often used for many people as a moral guide. They're often used as a a list of of rights and wrongs that that we've got to to live by. People who who really don't otherwise care for God or or the Bible will often use the the Ten Commandments as kind of a moral guide. We had a a neighbor who was very open about their um, unbelief of God or or things that were in the the Bible and and, uh, said to us often that I try to live a good life. I try to live a good life and I live by the Ten Commandments and some other statements from Buddha, and so they just kind of merge that all together. And that's often how we hear of the Ten Commandments, that it's a checklist of morality, a list to indicate how well I'm doing in life. And I think to understand the Ten commandments in the bible we 've got to understand the original context in which they were given, and that's what we've been working through over the last month since since August um, in this ongoing story of the book of Exodus. And so if you remember the setting, if you've been with us, if not, let me, let me t- fill you in on the setting. Uh, the setting is this, that these people, God's people, have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 plus years, and over a, a series of, of really wild events, God has freed them from slavery, and he, he told them that this was going to happen. He said, yes, it's going to happen. God, God keeps his promises, and, and he frees them from slavery, and now they've been wandering around in the wilderness for three months and they've been led by God they've been provided for by God they have been directed by God through a cloud or through smoke or through a leader this mediator Moses and the people have now finally settled into the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai they've rested in at the foot of Mount Sinai where God promised they would settle in does God always keep his promises Come on, let's hear that. Does God always keep his promises? Yeah, always. And so the people have settled in to to the foot of Mount Sinai where God said they would land for the purpose of what? Worshiping him. And so the rest of the book of Exodus happens here. The the book of Exodus is is evenly divided. Chapters 1 through 19, uh, we read about the rescue of a people from an evil king. Chapters 20 through 40, we read about the freedom of a people to serve and worship a good king. Now that's our life, isn't it? That we've been freed from and rescued from an evil way of life under the domain of an evil king, an evil evil ruler. And we've been freed into a life of worship under a good king. A people freed, a people saved from slavery for the purpose of worshiping a good God. That's the context for the setting of this really well-known, famous passage of the Ten Commandments. And I think what often happens is we come to the Ten Commandments with the view that they are there to tell us how to live. They're there for me to know how I need to live. And while that's absolutely true, they're commandments for us, that that we are to, to live out the real commandments given to the people of God to show us how to live in right relationship with God That's absolutely true. What often happens is the focus becomes me. How am I doing on these things? Am I living these things out? And so this morning what I want to do for us is I want to help us turn that upside down and see that the focus is all pointing to God. The focus of this is all pointing to God, and so I want to walk through the passage as we do every week with two questions in mind this week. Here are the two questions that I want to put in front of us as we walk through this. First, what is the command? What's the command? What is it at face value? We're going to walk through all of them. What is the command? And then secondly, what does the command say about the nature of God? What does the command, in its face value, what does the command say about the attributes of God? What attribute is clearly seen of God? Does that make sense? So that's how we're going to move through this, all right? So take a deep breath. We are going to Read through the passage. I'll read through the passage. As, as a church, we prize the Word of God. And so with the help of the Spirit and with God's direction, we read the Word of God and, and know that, that He will be um, showing us more of Himself. And we prize the Word of God so much that I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to join me in standing as I read this morning. Um, and, and as I read, you can go ahead and stand. As I read, here's what I want to do. I want to clearly mark the spot at which I'm finished reading God's Word. These are God's Words but by saying this is God's Word. Okay? And to that, your response will be, thanks be to God. Okay? Because God's Word is um, uh, written for us. And so here, chapter 20, starting in verse 1. You can follow along, I will read aloud. And, <clears throat> and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. Amen. You may have a seat. So how does it all start, right? We, we jump right into a passage. How does it all start? In the first two verses, here's what we see. God speaks. God speaks. In, in those first two introductory verses, God speaks. And that's not to be taken lightly. Let's not just breeze over that and think, well, God, yes, yes. God speaks. I get it. No, don't take that lightly that the one and only true God is speaking. And not just speaking any old thing, but he's speaking to the people. He's, he's using words, speaking to the people he has rescued, speaking to his prized possession. And and in verse two, God says, I am the Lord, your God. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, here's what we need to see here, that, that this God is speaking directly to the people speaking directly to them not using a mediator not using moses to communicate these things to the people that god is speaking directly to the people god himself the very god who in love freed them from slavery so that they could be in right worship relationship with him is now speaking to the people and i think often what happens when we read through this and think are you here with me that 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 when we read through the old testament we see god speaking to the people i often think well that would be nice if he spoke to me like that. But then I would know what I'm supposed to do, right? Then, then I would know. And I think what happens when we go in that direction is we neglect to remember that God has spoken to us, right? That we have his word, that, that he speaks directly to us. And so let's not distance ourselves from this so much that we neglect to remember that God speaks to us as well through through His Word, that God speaks. And, and that's the setup to the Ten Commandments, or literally the, the ten words that God gives to the people so that they would know Him, know that He's a holy God, know that He has called them in, to be holy, called them to obedient life to be holy. Now this is covenant language. His covenant language that he's using, God is making a covenant with the people. He's saying, I, I brought you into covenant relationship with me, and these are the overarching terms of this covenant. If you want to know how to be in relationship with me, I'm going to put out a covenant. I'm, I'm part of this covenant. You're part of this covenant. And, and these are the overarching terms of the covenant that, that I am giving to you. Right, and, and so he just briefly states them. We'll get into a lot more explanation in the, the week's to come. Lots more explanation, chapter after chapter of explanation of what some of these things mean. But in light of the context, the very first straightforward command then makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? In light of the context that we just walked through, that God would say, I'm the Lord your God, the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that was me. You're my prized possession. I'm the one who brought you out. A holy people set apart I brought you out, and then what is the first straightforward command from God in verse 3? You shall have no other gods before me. I brought you out. I am your God. You have have no other gods before me. Remember, here's the question we're asking. What's the command? The very straightforward command is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Literally, the sense is you shall have no other gods besides me. No other gods. The one true God is one alone. Only Now that's a right and appropriate thing for the people to hear why. Because they've just lived generation after generation after generation in a place that had multiple gods. So, so their lifestyle was, was one that was in and around a, a place of polytheism, multiple gods. God says, no, that cannot be that cannot be you shall have no other gods and not only is this good for the people to hear as they come to come out of the culture they've been in but this is good for the people to hear as they consider why they've been freed right why they've been saved why they have been called out of this what was the purpose that god was freeing the people to do what worship him to to worship god The, the one True God is the One who has saved them for the purpose of worship. No other God has done that. No other God has done that. God did not rescue them so that they would have freedom of worship. I think we often feel that way don 't we? A God has saved me, so now I can just sort of live a carefree life that God no no no, God has called them out of that so that they would worship Him alone that 's the command. You shall have no other gods besides. Me, and, and we need to hear that as well. And so the second question is this. What does the command say about the nature of God? Here's what the first of the Ten Commandments says about God. God is jealous. If you're a note taker, you can write these down as, as we go. God is jealous. Now I know when we hear that word, our minds often go negative, Right? Well, jealousy. can't be jealous. That's a sin. You can't, you can't be jealous. That's a negative thing. God can't be that. And we'll see a bit more about this in the second command as well, that God is absolutely a jealous God. So let's define jealousy. All right? Let's define it. To be jealous is to be protective of or desirous of a position that someone else has taken that ought to be yours some sort of fame some sort of success some sort of privilege some sort of advantage that someone else that that ought to be yours and so you're desirous uh, of that protective uh, of that and and so you put that in terms of a perfect and holy God is there anyone who should have position or fame or success or advantage over God is there anyone No, no one And so in His perfect holiness, God is absolutely jealous of any other person, place, or thing that may get the attention, may get the affection, may get the worship that that He deserves because He is right and holy in every way, perfect in every way. And this ought to be, for us, overwhelmingly powerful. If we stop to, to consider what, is going on in this attribute. To know that we have a God, the God of the universe who has called us His own, who has saved us to be His own people so so that we can worship Him, and that God is jealous of all of our attention. That ought to be overwhelmingly powerful to us. That we've not just been called into a a, a relationship where God says, ah, whatever, I'll take what you've got left over. No, that God is saying, I love you, and I want to be in relationship with you so badly that I want all of your affection, all of your attention. I'm jealous of that. Command number two, look at verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. God, God goes on in verse 5, You shall not bow down to it, uh, uh, for I am a jealous God. Similar to the first one, uh, but let's answer the question, What's the command? What's the prohibition here? What is the, the command? The command is uh, against I- idolatry. It's about the worship of other man-made things. Things that are not worthy of our attention, worthy of our affection, and especially not worthy of our worship. This is a command, uh, a prohibition against worshiping man-made idols man-made idols and this is crucial for the israelites because they've just come out of egypt and they're headed into canaan both egypt and canaan are polytheistic cultures where they set up gods and set up idols and set up altars to to bow down and worship and so the people need to know that god will not have that so what's the command you shall not worship man-made idols And what does that say about the nature of God? What does that say about the nature of God? It says this, that God is worthy. God alone is worthy above all things in heaven, in earth, in the sea, above all things that we would create and fashion and form. God is the only one who is worthy of our worship, worthy of our affection, worthy of our attention. God is worthy. He says, you shall not bow down to these things or serve them or worship them. Why? Why? He says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And so it's as if God is saying, I've made you. Listen, I've made you to worship me. I've created you to worship me. That's the very reason I I, I have created you and called you my own. And you are functioning as I've made you when you're doing the thing I've made you to do. God alone is worthy of worship and so the command as we'll see in command number four has a longer explanation of how this is to all work out he says if you disobey this command you will see and experience the punishment the wrath of God disobedient generation after generation after generation of those who hate or oppose God will experience the just wrath of God because God alone is worthy and at the same time verse 6 blows me away That God shows steadfast, ongoing love toward those who love and keep His commandments. That a worthy God, worthy of worship, also has love for His people. Love for a people who walk in these commands. God alone is worthy, demanding obedience, demanding worship. Command number three. What's the command? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Right? That's the command. Um, that command may be confusing to many of us. In fact, that uh, command is, is the very command that has forced many of us over the years to say, oh my gosh. True. Right now, nah, don't say "Oh my God." Okay, "Oh my gosh." Right, and so we've gone in that direction based on what we think command number three is saying. But in light of the original context in Exodus twenty, the the idea is that God's name is a powerful name, and and it's not to be used like some magic word that gets you what you want. So this is a, a, again a legal kind of, of wording where you would take an oath, and to bring seriousness to the oath. You would say, I swear by the name of, and then you'd fill in a, the name of a deity. And so God is saying, no, I'm not going to be like that. You're not going to use my, my powerful name to get you what you want. You're, you're not going to do that. And so the command then is this, don't use God's name for your own benefit. The, the powerful name of God for your own gain. God's name is powerful, but it's powerful in a way that points to his power, not yours. His fame, not yours. And so what does the command say about the nature of God, the, the nature of his attributes? It says this, that God is powerful, that, that God alone is powerful. His name alone is powerful. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of Exodus, when Moses asks God from the, the burning bush, who should I tell Pharaoh who sent me? And God's response is what? I am. Right. All right. I don't even have a name. No one's given me a name. I've made up a name for myself. You just go and tell Pharaoh I am. The powerful name of God was given in such a way to show the others that he is all-powerful and authoritative. God's name alone is powerful. But listen, not for our attention and not for our own purposes of pointing people to us, but for pointing people to the power and fame of God command number four. This one is not a prohibition. It's not a you shall not. Rather, it's a you shall and it has a a lengthier explanation. Uh, Again, it starts in verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, right? The the longest of the Ten Commandments, and, and to be honest, it's one that's really quite confusing to know how to obey today. Right, how do we do that? How, how are we supposed to, to do that? How, are, how am I to carry that out? And so, so what's the command? Right? What's the command? The command at its base level is explained in verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. Literally a stoppage. It, it's, it's a stoppage to the Lord your God. Now we've already seen this applied, haven't we, in, in Exodus 16 where God gave the people manna he gave them bread to eat and what did god tell them he said you're going to gather this bread and you're going to gather gather it every day enough for that day and on the sixth day you're going to get gather double that amount because on the seventh day you are to rest you are not to gather right and and so he's we've already seen this in, in application the people of god already knew this command through the practical provision of manna on the ground and now they're hearing from god that it is an explicit command Not just an application, but an explicit command to to God to obey, to keep this day holy and set apart. This command is for everyone, God says. It's for son, daughter, male, female, servant, and even the livestock. This is a God-given command to rest. And I think this is the part we need to hear. It's a God-given command to rest and release control of what could happen on that last day it's a way for us to to release any at least semblance of what we think is our control this is a day set aside with at least two things in mind first it's set aside as a day of no work and then secondly it's set aside as a day to the lord your god to worship now listen friends this day is counter to so much of what we believe and live out as Americans isn't it Uh, or maybe as humans, maybe we'll put it that way, as humans. It's an opposition to everything that that we believe and live out. Because if I can just work a little bit more, I'll get ahead. And, And we even think if I can work a little bit more, then my rest will be better. But what happens on that day of rest, we work a little bit more. And we just continue to work and work and work. And so counter to everything we believe and live out, we find so much worth and identity in our work that we cannot stop. It's an opposition. It's an opposition to to this command. Our lives are in opposition to this command in, in those two ways that we find so much identity in our work, we can't stop. And then second, we have a difficult time devoting time and space to restfully worship God. And this rhythm of rest and worship is not only healthy for our lives, not only healthy, but it's also a command. It's a command from God. And so what does this command from God say about His nature, about His attributes? What does this command say about His attributes? It says this, that God sustains. God sustains. God created all things. God created all things, not least of which was His prized creation, humankind. And not only did God create, but He continues to sustain His creation. His provision is ongoing. If you stop, He doesn't. And so he sustains what he's upholding. Command number four teaches us to trust that we are not in control. We should know that, but we don't. And so it teaches us that we are not in control, but God is, that he's worthy of our worship, that he's worthy of our time, that he's worthy of our, uh, our space uh, set aside for his own worship. God sustains so that we can trust, so that we can rest, so that we can worship. And this command is two parts. God is saying stop work and and rely on my sustaining power and secondly, stop work and focus on worshiping me. And this is a command that I would love to see us growing in as a people, as a church. This is a command that I would love to see us growing in over the months and the years to, to come. What a blessing it would be, wouldn't it? If If we would be a church marked by our joyful, rest-filled worship of Almighty God. That there would be an ease to our gathering together to worship the Almighty God together. God is a sustaining God. That's four, right? The first four commands are, are there for us to, to see how we approach God, how we relate with God. And the next six commands are about our approach to others. But I want us to be careful that we don't separate those so much that we see some as important and some as high, right? High and mighty. And then some as, oh, we'll, we'll get to those Maybe. I want us to be careful to, to, to realize that God, the God of the universe, is speaking all ten of these, and so let's, let's treat them with the same kind of weight. What is number five? We'll, we'll move through these a little more quickly. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. Kids, show hands. Should we skip this one? Yeah, just move on. All right, all right. So we'll just move on. No, honor your father and mother, and it comes with a promise that your days would be long, that you would live in God's favor with a a long life. The command is honor your parents, right? And, and kids, this is often one that's put in front of you, right, in a moment of disobedience. Hey, honor your father, honor your mother, right? That that's when it's often used. I'll, I'll confess that I often put that in front of our boys as a corrective kind of thing. In fact, um. I, I walked through some of this last night as we're sitting on our couch having Bible time. They're supposed to be sitting like good little pastor's children, but, well, maybe they weren't. So anyway, I had to say, hey, honor your father. And this is what that means because I knew I was going to stand up here and give this little thing. So I had to say that, right? So here I am. This is something that we often put in front of children as correction. But, but let's go to the definition of Honor. And the definition of honor is something like this, respect given to a person because of their position. So it's respect given to a person because of their position. That, that's the command, honor your father and mother. Now, now, what does that command then say about the nature of God? It says this, that God is authoritative. Now, let me, let me show you how that works out. He is, God is the the one giving the command about honor being given. And He can do that because He has the authority to give the position of honor. And He's giving that position of honor to parents. So kids, it's not our fault, right? It's God's, right? No, God God has given the position of honor to the, the parents. And so the command is honor them. God is authoritative giving the authority over to the parents. The position there is there. And so honor is to be given to them. And so what we work toward as a family, we have five boys, what we work toward as a family, and we failed, i failed multiple times, but it's something like this. Uh, boys, you, you understand that the command in Scripture is to honor your father and mother. And in doing that, you're honoring God, the almighty God of the universe. Isn't our desire as parents, more than they would honor us, that they would worship God, that they would honor God? So this is an opportunity for us to say, yes, you've got areas in your life where you can can look to God and see more of God and honor Him, He's the one worthy of honor. He's the one who is all-powerful and all, uh, all authority rests in Him. Command number six, verse 13. You shall not murder right that's the command i think we know what this one is right do i have to give much explanation the taking of a life of someone who is created in the image of god humans are created in the image of god we're image bearers of the creator and in that we model him in creating and in being creative and seeking to create not doing away with creation not least of which is god's prize creation humankind and so, what does the, the command say about the nature of God? It says this that God creates. God is the one who creates, and he uniquely created us in his image. And God gives life, and God determines the days of life. And God, God gives and God takes away. That's his role. God gives and God takes away. We don't do that. And so, to take the life of a man, uh, of one made in the image of God, is to go against that command. It's sin. God creates. Command number seven, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. All right. What's the command? The command at the base level is this. You shall not be sexually unfaithful to your spouse. Or, or if you're unmarried, you shall not cause someone else to be uh, uh, unfaithful to their spouse by engaging in those same things. This is about purity and faithfulness in, in marital relations. Now listen, friends. Our world does not prize this command. Our world does not really care much about this command. But, this is a command from our Almighty God. Not a suggestion about how to make things better. This is a command from an Almighty God. And it says something about the nature of God. It points us to this that God is faithful, right? That God is faithful. Isn't that the point of the commandments? The Ten Commandments show us the nature of God, the attributes of God, and His call for us to be like Him. So God is faithful. He does not leave us. He does not forsake us. He does not leave us and choose someone else. Our God is faithful. He keeps His covenant and His commitment to us. God is faithful faithful even when we don't deserve it. God is faithful. God is faithful. And so yes, the command is to to not commit adultery, to be faithful to your spouse. And it's a command to us so that we see that God is faithful and he commands us to be like him. Command number eight, verse 15. You shall not steal, right? This this command addresses the, the taking of something that does not belong to you. I think I think we get that, right? I think we understand that. I'm not I'm not sure there could be much arguing with this command. Although I suppose <clears throat> I suppose I could go into all the ways we we actually do this without even thinking about it, right? Where we would illegally obtain some song, some music, TV show, um, some movie off the internet, that, that's stealing, right? So we, we could go there. We could also go here. When you go to a restaurant, you say, I'm just going to have water. Can you give me a water cup? And what do you do? Orange crush, right? So you do it. That's stealing. Stealing. Sorry. And we would say, well, those are just based on technicalities. But that's also a blatant sin against a God who says, do not steal. I think it's more common than we realize. And so we don't brush it aside. It's, it's common. We have. A family of friends who, who um, the wife was in a place where she wanted um, items of clothing that they could not afford. And so time after time would go into store after store and steal things, even though she was caught on multiple occasions, would keep going back. This, this happens this continues to happen and so we don't shove it off as those people do that no no we we do this and the reality is the command is you shall not steal the sinful behavior begins to destroy community especially if uh, if the stealing is from someone else in the community we understand that right and so what does the command say about the nature of god it says this god provides god provides doesn't a command like this point us in that direction, that we, take, we don't take what is not ours because we trust in a God to provide all things that He thinks we ought to have? God is a providing God, that God owns all things. We just talked about this last week, chapter 19, verse 5, where, where God says, all the earth is mine. Don't you think He could give you more if he, if he thought you needed more? And so the command is there to do not steal, and it points us in a direction of showing us that God Provides command number nine. This command is in verse sixteen. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What's the command? This is legal wording in, in, a, in, a, in a law court kind of way. The idea is that you're not speaking falsely against others. You're not lying about someone else in a way that gets you to come out ahead. So, so uh, notice the word neighbor is used here. So, so God is trying to show us this is about community. This is not about you and your relationship with others. This shows the intimacy of community, but it also extends out to anyone who, who may be damaged by our lying words about them. This, this destroys community when we say things that are untrue about others so that we would come out ahead and this command says something about the nature of God if God is calling us to be like him then we would have to say that God is truth and we are to model that God is truth and he only speaks truth and we're to be like God and so God when God speaks everything he says is true everything that God does is truth all all of that is truth what a comfort for us to know that our God is the very definition of truth we don't have to wonder. Well, I wonder if he was telling the truth there. No, he is telling the, the truth, and so the command is: Do not bear false witness. God is truth. And then finally, the tenth commandment in verse seventeen. What's the commandment? You shall not cover, covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his property, anything that is his. Now. It's interesting, I think, that, that when I was trying to think through this and try to come up with a good way to, for, to describe this, I just went to several dictionaries to come up with a, a good definition of covet. And as I went to dictionary after dictionary to get a formal definition of the word covet, many of the definitions were positive. So, so we would say something like, well, I, 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 um, I, I, I covet your time here, right? Or, or in Christian circles, we would say, I covet your prayers, brother. Right? That you end up in brother. Right? I covet your <laughs> prayers. However, the way that, that God is using this is absolutely in, in the negative. And it would be like this. To, to wish for eagerly, or, or to crave, or have your heart set on something that is not rightfully yours. It's not rightfully yours. There's a sense of sinful envy my neighbor has a pop-up camper sitting in his driveway, conveniently placed right outside of our bedroom window so that every time I look out, I see it and know that I don't have it. Because as a family of seven, we have a tent, right, that sleeps all of us so very comfortably. And so I look out of our window every day and see that pop-up camper, and I, and I think to myself, well, that man does not even use it, right? Right? Um, uh, now, many uh, of my thoughts now uh, of him are in light of something that he has and something I want. So we're in conversation, and I'm just looking right over his shoulder at the pop-up camper, right? And so that, that's how I see him. And that, that trickles into so many areas of life, doesn't it? Well, that person's wife, she's so loving to him so caring and compassionate and really builds him up and really pours into him and, and she's gorgeous. Right. Or, or that person's husband, he, he comes home, he's tired, and he plays with the kids. I've seen it. Plays with the kids. He does family devotions regularly. And he works out. And that just goes on and on, doesn't it? just creeps into all areas of our lives. Everyone wrestles with this. Now, it's not explained here in this way, but I often wonder if God put this one last to show us. If you think you're doing okay on the other nine, how about this one, right? Because we all fail miserably here. The the one that that we look at and we think, well, I I think I've got them all, but this one. And this one is so damning because it can often be the starting point of many of the other ones. You you want something you don't have and so you covet and then you steal. You want a spouse you don't have so you commit adultery. You want a position you don't have, so you lie about someone to get their position. But this is a command from God, you shall not covet. And what does this one say about the character of God? What does this one say about the nature of God, His attributes? We need to hear this. I need to hear this one so badly. It's this, that God satisfies God satisfies. That's the only answer to coveting. I mean, we could, we could try really hard to not covet, right? I'm going to try really hard to covet, and we usually go to the other side of that and say, oh, I'm just going to work on being content. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be content. You know, I don't have a pop-up camper, but I've got a tent that sleeps, all seven of us, and I'm just going to be content. But content in what? That tent, Right? And so my contentment has gone to the thing and not the giver. God alone satisfies. Finding our deep longings only met in the satisfaction of the one true God is the only remedy to a covetous heart. God alone satisfies. Now friends, look at that list. Look at this list up here. That is our God. These, these Ten Commandments are the terms of a covenant that God is inviting a people into. The terms of a covenant relationship with, with Him, with the God of the universe. The, the Ten Commandments show us God for the purpose of what? Worship. When we see this list, our hearts ought to be drawn in to worship an almighty God. So the chapter begins with God speaking. And the chapter ends with the people responding. know if you caught that when we read through it how did the people respond when the people heard the thunder and the trumpet and the sound of the lightning and the smoke the people were afraid and they stood far off from the mountain and they said to Moses Moses you speak to us instead of God because when God speaks to us we're terrified he's going to kill us and so they respond And Moses reassures the people there's no need to be terrified. There's no need to be terrified. God has come to test you, to put in front of you terms of a covenant, uh, to have right relationship with Him. He's done that so that there would be an appropriate fear, not a terrified fear, but an appropriate fear, an awe and respect and honor of Him so that you would not sin. So this covenant would not be broken. And so the people respond in so many ways appropriately that this is our God. In, in fear, and Moses is saying, no, 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 not, not terrified, but, but a healthy, healthy fear. friends. This is our God. And, and when we think about, and we read about, and study the Ten Commandments, I think we need to keep in mind two things. We'll finish here. Give, give me two minutes. We, we need to keep in mind two ways that we respond. First, we respond in awe that a holy God, perfect and holy God, has given us laws to live by, given us terms of a covenant for right relationship. We live in awe that God would do that, that the God, the, the God of the universe would, would even interact with us let alone give us terms for how we can be in relationship with Him, we, we respond in awe. We, we feel the weight of God's commands to be sure, and often we feel the burden of obedience under those commands. We, we've just spent 40 minutes, it's only been 40 minutes, 40 minutes talking through commands, and we feel the weight of that. We feel it. We hear commands about coveting and we just feel the weight or we, we hear commands about keeping the Sabbath and I feel the weight. And we hear commands about lying or adultery or wherever, wherever that hits you. And we feel the weight. We sense the weight in these commands and we're going to see it week after week after week in the, in the weeks to come. We're commanded to obedience in these things. It's weighty and it feels Overwhelming, doesn't it? We respond in awe. Second, we respond in rejoicing that the weight of these commands has been lifted. Not taken away, yes, but lifted. These didn't just disappear. These commands are still there and the weight is still there, but they've been lifted by the one who has obeyed them perfectly Jesus. The law, the commandments point us to our sin and our need for someone to deal with it. And try as we might, we cannot obey these perfectly. And there's, there's a penalty for disobedience. And the Bible's very clear that that penalty it is death. But the beauty of the gospel is this that, that Jesus came to earth as a human. We're told in Matthew 5 that Jesus came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it in every way. We're told in Galatians 4 that Jesus was born into this world under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Why? That, that we might no longer be slaves, but receive adoption as sons and, and daughters. He's taken the weight and the burden of the law, obeyed in perfect holiness, and paid for the disobedience. And now by faith, Romans 8 tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, because Christ has set us free from that weight. Praise be to God that the weight has been lifted. And so today we respond in awe that God has called us in. And we respond in rejoicing that He's allowed us in with the weight being lifted because of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are um, humbled by the fact that You would speak to us. That that You would speak to us. Speak to us um, through Your Word. Speak to us through Your Son. Speak to us through the Holy Spirit. That You would speak to us. Giving us entrance into relationship with You. Yes, You've called us to obedience. You've called us to be holy like You are holy. And we feel the weight of that. And and by the work of the Spirit, we're able to move toward that. But we know and we've experienced, and some of us are probably even feeling the weight of our own sin this morning that we've tried to work against, it, we've tried to turn from it, and we cannot. And so God, my prayer for my friends here this morning is that as they feel the weight of their sin, as I feel the weight of my own sin, that we would together respond in all that You've invited us in and respond in rejoicing that the work has been finished through the death, burial, and resurrection of Your Son, Jesus. I pray that we would believe that. Where we lack faith, give us more. We pray. Amen.